What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to this week's episode of Armchair Producers, the holier-than-thou uh, show of mediocrity. I am one of your hosts, George Terran, alongside the man, the myth, the true talent, and the reason you all come in for the show, Mr. Travis Croft. How are you, sir? I am fine, Dandy. I'm a, I'm a bit tired t- tonight. Um, regular viewers might notice there's some blue boxes behind me here. And unfortunately, oh. for those who've fallen in love with the rather nondescript surroundings I've been using for the last year, unfortunately, uh, I will be moving again <laughs> in the not too distant future. Hopefully, there was some more, more salubrious surrounds. A little bit, I think it's going to be quite sexy, the little setup we're going to have for just oh, in the background, you know, behind me. It's going to be a little bit more interesting in a, in a new place, but uh, packing and moving. It's becoming an annual event for me, um, and I I've done it every year since 2019. Many times as I've had jobs, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. Like I think I was in, it's in this, inc- this incarnation of a show, mm-hmm. I've been through four different places. Um, yes, um, the original Electric Fry Brand Studios in Thomastown, yeah. yep. my place in Richmond, where we started the pandemic. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, but they. My uh, my place in Hawthorne, and yep. now um, my current uh, apartment um, in the south of Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, wow, it's, it's, I stayed in the same place for ten years before that. Like, and now it's like, it's it balancing out over the course of your life, you know. Is it, it is before before I lived there for ten years, I was moving every year as well. It's just like, um, <laughs> you know, you think you get tired of it after a while, but here we are. You just you just the thrill seeker. That's the truth of it. You know, it is fun and fun. It's always fun exploring a new neighborhood um, for a true. little while. And I am be moving right near the Church of Scientology, so it's going to be really exciting. You Maybe, you know, we traveled all the way to Adelaide for a pie floater. Maybe we have a mobile episode where we experience their free free. They've got signs outside about free intelligence tests. I wonder if it'd be okay if we brought a GoPro in and filmed it. Um, <laughs> I have a feeling maybe they wouldn't maybe be okay not. with that. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. Why would you? You're a church. You're, you're just exploring your religion. Yeah. I don't know. Don't sue me, hide, please. Right? I don't have any money. Um, <laughs> that really should probably be the first um, question on their checklist. How much money do you have? Um, uh, should we sue you or you need to go clear? Um, but it's a very, it's a very, very, very impressive building. Um, I don't they know if you've ever are... been, you've seen their buildings in LA before? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they kind of, they always reminded me of something like a cross between um, the architectural design of Ego Shandor's apartment block in ghostbusters but just put a little bit of you know more sort of like 90s kind of shake and bake building on it it's a weird thing it is strange they've got those big signs that look very fancy and they're painted mm. blue but they own blocks entire blocks in LA. Yeah. They, it. They, are, like, they are property rich but then again i remember going on a tour in in, in downtown la with the um dearly departed tour so you do a famous death scene places in oh, yeah. LA. if you're ever in la i strongly highly recommend taking the dearly departed tour and they was telling me like they bought them in the 80s when no one wanted to live or own property in that part of town so smart call by them but it's a fascinating part of the city if you're, ever, if you're ever in la and you have a chance to cruise past and have a look at mm-hmm. their buildings it's actually a fascinating thing to see because like it's you're right it's just a bit weird it's like someone put the 90s through yeah you know, it's sort of a uh, 
filtered them through Battlefield Earth or something, and you know they came yeah. out of this. Maybe. Oh, see, we we could have gone to Battlefield Earth. Yeah, Broken Arrow was bad enough. <laughs> <laughs> um uh, i mean we could have it would have been interesting i suppose um but we did instead follow my suggestion to go to wake in fright wake in fright now fright. this was um this is one of somewhat legendary status right it is something of a um oh, it's an infamous um mm-hmm. once considered lost yeah strain classic i think um so we might as well crack on. 20 Wake in Front was made in 1971 after a ga- bad gambling bet. A school teacher is marooned in a town full of crazy, drunk, violent men who threaten to make him just as crazy, drunk, and violent. I don't like that synopsis very much, but it's there. Um, famously, this film kind of was released in the 70s in Australia and mm. didn't do well, wasn't looked upon fondly by the Australian public. Um, mm. um, particularly, it went to Khan um it, where it competed for the palm door it was released in the united states under and in the uk under mm-hmm. the title outback mm-hmm. um because <laughs> there's a fantastic interview with a director of his um ted kotcheff i think his name is um at uh, uh yeah ted kotcheff on you can find mm-hmm. it on youtube and he says the the studio in the state said we don't want it to be called waking freight that sounds too much like a hitchcock film and he's like and so that's a bad thing now <laughs> oh no please um, so they called it outback instead um and then it disappeared uh it yeah. was considered lost for many 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 years uh until the um the negatives were discovered in pittsburgh pennsylvania um for some reason in an iron mountain facility i think it says um but uh, where it, the film was restored painstakingly restored almost frame by frame by mm. by um people who were doing it almost out of a love for it i think there's a great deal of other material was discovered later but it's now been restored it's available on dvd mm-hmm. available on, on your streaming services available on youtube apparently i didn't yeah. realize that after yeah. paying for it i'm like oh <laughs> i will happily take it for free <laughs> um but yes it, but interestingly on its re-release it's become this lauded classic it's interesting how that happens sometimes where mm. films in their original time period were kind of like no thank you none of that but when they're you know rediscovered 30 years later mm. all of a sudden people are like wow wow yeah. like how did we how do we space on this one because this is this is one of the movies that uh, Tarantino kind of helped re-pioneer somewhat because of the um, like um, exploitation attitude. It's an exploitation classic. Also, mm. Martin Scorsese has mm. um, has been a huge supporter of it. There's a fantastic little snippet here in the trivia on IMDb uh, among the directors in, in attendance during the film screening at the 1971 Cannes Film Festival was a mm. young man who sat directly by Kate Kotcheff. But director noted that throughout the screening, the man excitedly made commentary on the on-screen action, such as, wow, wow, what a scene. Boy, I didn't see that, expect that. That's great. His remarks were, he says, then if during John and Doc's homosexual encounter, during which he said, this director, he's going to go all the way. He's going all the way. He's going all the way. Oh, my God, he went all the way. Pleased by his reaction, Kotcheff asked the film's PR manager to identify the eager young man for him, Martin Scorsese, an unknown in the industry, whose only film to that point had flopped. Um, yada yada yada. He one of his quotes ended up being used uh, on the DVD and the advertising campaign when it was re-released years later. It left me speechless. Um, 
So I think if you win over Scorsese and Tarantino, you, you probably made something pretty decent. Mm. Um, I'm curious about what you made of it as this is interesting. This is a film about Australia by outsiders mm. and you're 50, 50 now. <laughs> I'm, I'm still definitely more an outsider. <laughs> um, I, I definitely uh, connected with Gary Bond in some way. <laughs> um, this, I, I will happily put my hand up and say, this was tough for, to watch. Not necessarily because of what was being shown to me, but just because of the, of the style of it. Um, it's a type of movie that I generally just don't like very much. Um, and I'm surprised. What kind of film is that? Do you think? How would you describe it as if you were trying to describe it to someone who hadn't seen it, which is probably most of our audience? This is a movie which plays on, play, it skirts that line of nothing's happening and everything's happening. Because there are just scenes where like nothing is happening. There's, there's the scene. Um, after they've gone uh, well, in between them doing all the, the kangaroo hunting where um, John is just passed out in a chair and collapses and you've got Doc just rabbiting on about Socrates and going, where the hell Socrates? And then the two other boys in the background just having a playful fight and then it suddenly turns like a legitimate fight. And then, <laughs> then Doc's just got the chair and he's sort of like throwing around going, blood, blood. And it's like, what the fuck is this? It's, it's, there's this shit happening, but at the same time, it's nothing. It's, it's a weird medley and it feels so dated, but at the same time, it feels out of time for anything because it's, it presents itself and it presents the Yabba as like a, a legitimate place and almost like a slice of life kind of movie and a cautionary tale of this is what could happen. This is just how the Australian outback life is. And it does that so well that the kind of insanity of the situation that John spirals on feels almost like a really perverse bastardization of alice through the looking glass where it just gets weirder and weirder and weirder and then it snaps back to reality and so it's to, to the point where this is i would put this on a similar level to something like requiem for a dream or pie which are really brutal movies. Requiem for a Dream is more beautiful and more nuanced, I think, um, comparatively. But it's such a visceral surgical attack on your senses that it's hard to be able to enjoy it on any real level. You experience this movie. Mm. those kinds of movies i've been exhausted this week so it was not the perfect movie for me to watch while i'm kind of going okay i need to focus on this this is not this is not a you know if you were if you were going to the cinema and this was playing and you're taking your girlfriend to the movies this is probably not one i'd recommend exactly exactly um, it, it does take some energy 
and attention. Mm. And I always remember a line when I read a review years ago of Train Spotting, which they described as a film to be endured rather than enjoyed. Yeah. Um, mm, I don't know if I agree with that about Train Spotting, but maybe yeah. parts of it uh, yeah. rather than a, as a whole. But I think this film is a film to be endured rather than enjoyed. Mm. But yeah. I think you can find enjoyment in that endurance. Um, yes. I. Um, I don't think it's dated at all. I think this film, I, I couldn't disagree with you more about it being dated. I think this film is as fresh and relevant and vital uh, as, as the day it was filmed. Now, it is dated in sounds obviously fashion, <laughs> hairstyles, music, uh, technology. Um, and, you know, I guess to some degree, hopefully, Australia. Um, be a different place. I like to in, think Australia has progressed because in the last fifty years. Um, but I think this is a takedown on masculinity. I think that's its core message. I think it's that's yeah. that scene in particular you're talking about there mm. is is an exploration or an attack or mm. on on Australian uh, ideas about masculinity. Um, I can mm. tell you, no, no, so I don't know. I was going to tell you, you didn't grow up in Australia because I think I've seen that fight happen. Mm. A number of times in my younger years, where it starts out lighthearted, but turns out going a bit hardcore at the end. Mm. Um, and I, I thought it was kind of a it was a nightmare. It was like being inside a nightmare. I thought there was almost a lynching mm. vibe to it at times. Like mm. I won't deny, this is a weird film. <laughs> this is a yeah. very strange film, um, but in the best possible way. Um, <laughs> I should give people a little bit more context on the story in the sense that I didn't really like that some that basic synopsis to give us a bit more context about what we're talking about here. Mm. Um, so we follow the character of John Grant, played by Gary Bond, who mm -hmm. is a British actor. He's a teacher working in a remote Australian town of Tibunda. He's under a financial bond for government job. Basically, he has to pay $1,000 uh the start of taking this job to guarantee that he'll stay for the length of his contract mm. a year i think yeah at the end of term before christmas holidays he plans to visit his girlfriend in sydney in order to catch a flight to sydney he takes a train to the nearby mining town of bundan yabba or the yabba and plans to stay there overnight before moving on to further to the airport things go grossly out of script he's engulfed by the yabba and it's disconcerting residents he mm. can i don't know about engulfed he is somehow sucked into this mm. layer of hell that is the yabba but it's very unusual layer of hell in the sense everybody's very polite yes um, yeah and um, there's there's that great um moment at the end where he sort of like turns down the the guy who's just like taking him back to town is yeah. like come on have a beer it's like no i i'm giving up drinking for now it's like oh you dirty bastard what the hell you know and he's not shouting it's like what's going on here you can go hunt people you can kill people you can break people and it's fine but i turned down a beer and it's just all hell breaks loose um yeah. and you know as an australian yes <laughs> yeah. this is a perfectly usable reaction um <laughs> the, the, the drinking is really kind of is is almost a character or a feature of a story yeah. in itself. So uh, John bumps into uh, Kip Rafferty, who we talked a little about last week as being mm -hmm. one of Australia's most famous film mm -hmm. exports once upon a time, mm -hmm. um, who is the local policeman, I think, um, yeah. uh, Jock, Jock Crawford. Yep. And he gives him sort of a tour of a town, including taking him for dinner. At the back of a place he's having dinner is a 
um, a, a two-up game. Uh, yeah. A two-up is actually illegal in Australia, except on Anzac Day. Oh, it's a four. Yeah, that is true. You can you can play two up, uh, well, at least in Victoria, at least you can only play it. I think on Anzac Day, okay. um, and that's basically involves uh, betting on um, flipping of two pennies, mm. uh, and whether they come up heads or tails. Uh, and for our American friends in Australia, pennies w- were one cent, like you guys, but they were like really quite sizable mm. coins, not like the tiny little ones the Americans have. Mm. Um, and initially kind of dismissive of the game. Oh, it's a simple enough game. Um, he just, he, after a few drinks, he decides to go back and have a go at it, wins a few, and as with most gamblers, he ends up losing it all. Uh, mm-hmm. And then he starts to really lose it. Um, yeah. When the, the same restaurant we meet, uh, Donald Pleasance's Doc Titan, mm-hmm. who is the town medical professional though not actually questionable whether he actually is a doctor um yeah. he's certainly one of the few educated men in town mm. if you sort of noted he was mentioning socrates earlier and um you know there's this fascinating little conversation you know about between the two of them a town he goes the town could be worse and how could it be worse the beer supply could run out you know yeah um, and he sort of like talks about it saying like oh yes i'm an alcoholic and so um it barely registers here like, mm. I can see that. <laughs> uh, and from there, he sort of sucked into this very polite vision of hell. He bumps into a man in the bar, and yet again, he's like, uh, he's got no money. So he's like, uh, you want a beer, mate? No, I don't want no money. I didn't ask you to buy me a beer. I said, I would buy you a beer. Yeah. I don't think that down. Grab a beer. And, you know, um, Al Thomas playing Tim Hines. Um, great scene, that one. And mm. he just insists on him coming back to his house. Yeah, and, you know, and he just sort of descends into this horrible that the, the drinking becomes repulsive. Yeah, like yeah. I mean, uh, I, I have gone back on the booze just as a um, uh, an acknowledgement of the film this week. Uh, that <laughs> said, though, it is Carlton Zero. This is non-alcoholic beer. I do try to drink a lot less these days, and uh, mine is the Spice Trade Gin. Is it actually real gin? Yeah. <laughs> okay. well, this is this is alcohol free beer, so apparently this is all the rage at the moment. You can have a you can have a good beer with no alcohol in it, and let me tell you. Mm, this episode <laughs> sponsored by alcohol. Oh free. Uh and like I tell you what, that's what they're drinking in hell. Um <laughs> that's <laughs> I tell you what. But anyway, I thought I would have the beer just to sort of acknowledge it, but it, it him catching a train or people drinking teenies on the train. Yeah. Um, it, it becomes, it does sort of descend into this nightmare and into the, probably the, the highlight of a low light of a film is the, the hunting trip, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. What did you, what do you make of a kangaroo hunting trip? Fuck. That was hard to watch. Um, as someone who has had car accidents, hitting kangaroos, um and loving animals and having to put kangaroos that have been hit by vehicles out of their misery i don't like it didn't like it didn't like um the way that it was done i appreciate the impact that they were going for because at the end of the movie there is that big blurb talking about how it was officially licensed um 
kangaroo the hunting scenes the producers noted the answer the hunting scenes depicted were taken during an actual an actual kangaroo hunt by professional licensed hunters for mm. this reason and because the survival of your kangaroo is seriously friend these scenes were shown uncut and after consultation with the leading animal welfare organizations in australia mm. and the united kingdom that I, I read that and i'm like in what universe was the kangaroo seriously threatened Became this yeah. kangaroo is not look i mean correct me if i'm wrong but like i am 99.9 percent .9 certain that is not the case at least not now there have mm -hmm. been even times where they've been considered a plague mm. portions just, just go to any any golf course here and you will see a whole troop of them i there see no shortage troops every day no shortage of kangaroos um mm. in this country at least not anymore um but yes that's it that was a visceral scene it was yeah. incredibly violent but then it just gets worse with the the butchering of them as well and um uh the uh um which one is it i think it's um yeah uh pete whistle uh pete whittle who plays joe he goes out and he literally just kind of hand-to-hand -hand combats one that's been injured and just butchers it and the way that that sequence is shot with the close-ups and then just screaming with kind of brutal delight as he's just slicing this kangaroo it's really fucking hard to watch really hard like the the descent into hell that um uh that john goes on is hard to watch it's it's tough that is like just taking it five steps further and especially when john decides yeah i'll give it a go and he he plays it gary bond plays that sequence so fucking well because he's all with it when they're driving around shooting and there's the long distance and then there's this fascination on his face as he watches joe hand to hand it and then it's like oh do you want to give it a go it's like yeah i'll give it a go and then the fear and the the sort of like more conscious side of his mind and that's sort of like educated side of his mind just kind of starts weighing things through. And then you see that kind of fall away as he brutalizes a small, a baby kangaroo that's been wounded. Fuck me. That's, that's in every sense of the word visceral. Um, I, yeah, again, I, I guess the part that found most shocking for me in mm. a way, um, because I'd read about it and I knew it was mm. coming. Yes, mm. I, I don't know. It was a, maybe it came out of left field for you. Um, uh, but I kind of knew there was a pretty brutal kangaroo hunting scene mm. coming. Um, mm. it was just the, the wastage of it. Like, it was not they were killing for food. Yeah. They were just leaving them there. They were just killing them for fun. Yeah. And they, they were taking like, the, the balls as trophies or something or for like, dog food. Um, and I mean, it was at one point they, they, they killed the kangaroo for food, but mm. most of the kangaroos that they were hitting with a car or shooting, they didn't seem to be coming back to click, pick up or yeah. take away for food, you know, or um, some other useful purpose. And that's kind mm. of the shocking part for me. Maybe that's yeah. a very 21st century way of looking at it. Um, you know, that, that they were just doing it for fun, really. It just does yeah. for shits and giggles is kind of kind of a horrific way of killing time no pun mm -hmm. intended mm. um 
there are roles of women in this film uh interesting in the fact that there are very very few yes. i can recall uh, i think two speaking roles for women not turning the little girl at the start of a film mm-hmm. who mutters some words to the teacher on the way out yeah there is um uh jeanette mm-hmm. um who is the daughter i think of um the gentleman we were talking about earlier um yeah i th- i think so um uh, uh, so, uh so tim hines Hain- yeah yes uh, uh, tim hines daughter i think um yeah. was the insinuation um and you can just see oh she's got she's actually got a very small role she's played by sylvia k mm. um but i think she does a fantastic job with a very limited screen time and, and dialogue mm. she gets you can sort of see the the, the desperation and loneliness mm. um and wear and tear on her face not and i don't, don't mean that a physical like she looks older than she is or mm-hmm. you know, beaten up or anything that you can just to see that in her, her her manner of speaking, the way she speaks, to the way she behaves, and mm. the way she just basically gives herself at one tries to give herself to to uh, John Grant at one point sexually, mm. but that doesn't end up going anywhere. Yeah, probably due to the excessive alcohol with mm-hmm. some. And there's even the throwaway line where John is talking to her, and um, I think it's uh, Dick or Joe, one of them, just kind of talks to the other boys who are all just getting drunk and chatting is like, well, I need ra- you'd rather talk with a girl than have a, have a beer with the boys. Yeah. That was interesting. Um, <laughs> and like, like that, I think that you're right. It's a fantastic observation. That one line mm. um, probably gives us a, a hint or a, an insight into the kind of misogyny that mm. kind of world she would have been given. It looked very much a man's world. Yeah. Uh, the, the Yabba yeah. uh, in 1970. So she would have had to put up with quite a bit. Yeah. Um, and there's also insinuations that she has a, a sexual relationship with Doc, mm-hmm. um, which is somewhat exploitative as well. Yeah. Um, so I, she was quite a sympathetic character mm. in a way. But, um, I felt quite bad for, for her. The other one was much smaller role, the role of um, the receptionist at the uh, hotel he's staying at, played yeah. by Maggie Dents. But she, again, just in the small scenes that she has, she looks so hot and bothered. You know, mm-hmm. she has a, a jug of water. Yeah, she sticks her hand just doing this. her head or on her chest. Yeah. And, and you see the look of relief on her face is sort of almost, you know, blissful yeah. expression as she, you know, she sits in front of a fan, wetting mm-hmm. her face is, you've been here for enough summers to understand a little bit of that, I think. Yeah. Um, you just wait for this summer. I'll be in EB Games just, like, just doing this. Making <laughs> everyone out. <laughs> Waking Games. <laughs> um, uh let's not go there um no. but, but she, again her her just in a, the way she delivers her line she's so distant so yeah monotonous you can almost again see it painted on her that the exhaustion yeah of, of the, ex, the existence she must endure not all the, the elements are only a part of it i'm sure mm-hmm. and that kind of leads me to the other big star of a film i think maybe the biggest star of a film what was the outback itself oh yeah um it's beautifully shot this film stunningly shot absolutely gorgeous and you especially um in the early parts of the um the the kangaroo hunt where they're just speeding through and it's just flat just 
dirt and desert and then you've got the the dead trees that they're just driving through and stuff it felt especially with this the sound of the engine of the car it made me just think oh fucking hell yeah mad max this is this is i can tell that this is the same kind of fucking world and it has that kind of absurdity of hyper realism and just vacant brutality of the outback of being out where there is nothing no trees no shelter no reprieve from the baking heat but unlike mad max where it is part of the world building it in they they film it and they shoot it in a way that is beautiful brutal but also informs on how these people are and why they live the life the way that they do because it is every day every minute of every day is just you're being cooked and so they do they have reached a point where it's do whatever i can to just feel something that isn't exhaustion and cooking and it's gone to the point of hedonism and excess of hunting for fun rather than for food and drinking to excess to escape it and it's more fun to drink something that makes you feel uh, feel silly rather than just drinking tepid water it it just informed on the characters really well um the other thing that occurred to me was it's it's they're living literally on the edge of civilization Mm. um it makes me think of you know that um maybe i'm going way too fucking wanky here and i apologize to our audience for <laughs> the unintended wankiness um this is that famous quote which i'm gonna butcher right now but it's like when you stare into the abyss the abyss also stares into you mm. um um uh, which is kind of what um i felt like they were doing there really mm. and that's um nietzsche nietzsche when you gaze into that abyss it gazes back and tells you what you were made of um, so yeah. butcher it. I'm sorry, um, but the abyss is the nothingness that surrounds mm. them in the outback. Like that has to have an impact on you. Yeah, um, I would imagine. Um, I've been. Have you been to that part of Australia? I have not. No, I have not gone anywhere near the centre. I have not gone at all to New South Wales. You're not missing much. Um, it's New South Wales. I mean, it's practically underwater right now, and it's an improvement. Um, <laughs> Wash away the unclean. That is probably very much too soon because there is yes. literally a flood. Yes, going anyway, I apologize <laughs> to the, the literal two people probably who listen to us from New South Wales. Um, <laughs> you should sometime go to Broken Hill, where mm. um, the, Yabba, filmed, right? the Yabba is Broken Hill. Yeah. Um, and it, it is actually filmed there. So it's on, on location. That's also where they shot um, Mad Max. Okay. I believe that's where they're shooting the next Mad Max as well. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they shot uh, the first uh, Riddick film uh, that way, I think, as well. Oh, yeah. Um, so what, what was that? Pitch Black. <laughs> it wasn't yeah, actually a Riddick Black. film. Riddick was a spin-off, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but you want to make a film about the end of the world, Broken Hills, where you New go? Like, well, that, that's the line um, from, uh, what was that, post-apocalyptic? Oh, uh, On the Beach. It's uh, a great place to make a film about the end of the world. But they were talking about Melbourne. <laughs> um, and I think there was something about how boring it was, where apparently that actually, he didn't actually say that. It's an attributed quote. Ah. But I like to believe it. Um, Melbourne in the 50s was a different place. Mm. Um, but 
if you've been out there, you can kind of imagine, you know, mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't suspect this is a bit different now because we were a little bit more or a lot more connected. You know, mm-hmm. you wouldn't feel as isolated living somewhere like Broken Hill today as you would yeah. in 50 years ago yeah. or 100 years ago. You would have been on the edge of humanity and, you know, really living on the edges of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and probably in that part of the world working a very dangerous, exhausting job. Yeah. Um, enough to drive anyone to drink and gambling, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other, the, an opening scene over the train station of Tungaba, is that the name of a town, I think? Tibunda. Uh, uh, Tibunda. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where he's, we have the schoolhouse on one side and the hotel on the other and nothing else. Yeah. My question is, where did the kids go? Where did they come from? Like there's a school full of children at the start of a film waiting to be let go. We you know take off and they say happy Christmas and goodbye, and then five minutes later he walks across the road to the hotel and there's no one around. Like you know, where did it he is go? One lost town. I don't know. Like exactly, there's no. It was a lot of kids. And maybe it was a train. I don't. Know. It's just yeah. I'm it's thinking about this too much. much. <laughs> you know, um, you know what I was thinking by the end of this film, and this is going to be really put offside the the uh, the critics um mm. is this film is basically the hangover australia yeah because like he rolls back up to work at the end of a film like nothing's happened there how was your holiday brilliant yeah see you later <laughs> yeah it's and and that's that's the part that kind of makes it that little bit more harrowing in some ways because everything that he went through, everything that he did, he has a nervous breakdown when he accidentally gets returned back to the Yabba when trying to escape it and get to Sydney. And then there's there's a conversation he has um, with Chips Rafferty, Jock, near the start, where Chips is saying about how people come to the Yabba and they don't really leave. And he says, well, there's, you know, you get a couple of suicides. He's like, well, that's one way to leave the Yabba. And he goes, oh, I like that. I like a man with a good sense of humour. And then that's what he ends up fucking trying to do. Spoilers for, for a 50-year-old fucking movie. But um, he botches it up. And next thing you know, he's just healed and going back to work. And with a fresh appreciation of life. Okay. That's a really fucking bleak way of looking at that. <laughs> it is. That's what I was like. It's interesting. You, t- you just change the tone of a film a little bit, spin yeah. it a little slightly different way, and the Hangover goes from a good time rollicking raunchy comedy to yeah. being a harrowing descent into the third layer of hell in America's gambling capital. You know, like it could yeah. be a terrifying film. Yeah, um, it just depends on how you spin it. Um, mm-hmm. And in this case, they've chosen to spin it as a, as a horrific nightmare in the heart of Australia. Um, I. I, I feel like there's a way, at least in the 60s and 70s, maybe you see it, well, it doesn't happen very often anymore, hmm. but the way foreigners would shoot Australia, in this case, it's directed by a Canadian. Hmm. Um, uh, and the main stars are British. Um, yeah. In, in Donald Pleasance and um, Gary uh, Gary Bond are both British. Mm-hmm. But I, And I felt like this story could only be told by a foreigner. Yeah. Um, apparently one of the reasons it didn't succeed initially is because Australians didn't like being seen as this. Hmm. Um, but this is what Australia looked like to these people, yeah, who are coming from overseas. 
And um, it's it's an interesting observation that you have there because if you had an Australian person being stranded in the Yabba, being surrounded by all these Australians who are all genuinely really nice, just extremely fucking weird and drunk and brutal in many ways, it... It doesn't seem so like, well, what's so bad about that? He's just offering him a beer. <laughs> Whereas for, for an Englishman, I felt really awkward and uncomfortable. The idea is so like, oh, no, I, I said no the first time. So stop asking. Stop, stop forcing. Fuck. Okay. It becomes a labor to just say yes. And he's just having to say yes all the fucking time. And then he's put in a position where he has no choice but to say yes and sponge off of people. And it's like, oh, fuck, this is just so cringeworthy, uncomfortable. But it was brilliant. Um, I just found the sense of menace mm. beneath that politeness very discomfort comforting. I mean, yeah. again, I'm an Australian, so, you know, you know some of the unspoken social um, norms here, but if someone offers you a beer, you're probably better to say yes, as long as you can see it being poured. <laughs> they don't roofie you. Um <laughs> But uh, it's still at the same time what I thought they pulled off brilliantly here was that, that quiet, menacing, unspoken danger mm. and menace. But we don't actually really know why. Yeah. Like, no one beats the shit out of him. No. No. No one attacks him. No one robs him. No. No one tries to kill him. No, one try no one's trying to hunt him down in a car. Yep. You know, the Lord Humongous doesn't make an appearance. No. Nope. Um, you know, it's <laughs> just... People genuinely being polite, but even the conversation with Jock at the start, where Jock's showing him around and you know, buying him a drink and telling just him where to have dinner. Just the subtlety of that. Just the like, fact that so like every time he just Jock just drains his drink and then just looks as if, why aren't you draining yours? It's it's a weird sense of familiar alienation. Interestingly, um, Chip Rafferty, uh, who put most scenes was drinking, insisted on drinking real pints of beer during the bar sequences. It had direct to substitute non-alcoholic uh, non beers for the real stuff, but Rafferty could tell immediately that it had no alcoholic content and demanded proper pints be served. He told Kotchiff, you concentrate on the directing, I'll concentrate on the drinking. Greater words have never been spoken by another Australian. The director calculated that due to this, Rafferty was drinking up to 30 pints per day. You know, I don't use the word hero very often on this show, but <laughs> Jesus Christ, 30 by today, I'd be dead. Fuck. Um, I mean, so take that into account as well. He was probably smashed when he filmed yeah. those scenes. Maybe that's why they're so fucking weird. Yeah. Um, in that there's like, you know, uh, but there's something about them aside from it. Like maybe it's just yeah. a bit of pause between answering a question or saying something, but how he says something, there's some incredible menace behind yeah. the way everybody speaks or regards yeah. Um, Gary Bond in this town yeah. and it's really impossible to say why yeah it's there and it's unspoken and um it's it's chilling this is a horror this is a, a horror film in which no one dies yeah yeah that's that's it and it's it's a road movie where no one goes anywhere yeah it's 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 the most brutal movie without, aside from the kangaroo hunt, any real brutality. 
and that is that is where it's it kind of persistently balancing on that it is this but it's not it is but it's not every single step of the way it's kind of presenting one way and feeling another it's that's why you have to you have to give it a full attention because otherwise you're lost i'll agree with you your initial overall synopsis this is not an easy film to watch is the correct one i think and mm. and should be taken into account by anybody who's planning to watch it themselves mm -hmm. give yourself some mental space yeah literally i'm, I'm serious like give yourself yes. some headspace before and after this is not one that will go hey look it's wake and fright we're having a movie night netflix and chill let's watch wake and fright no um <laughs> this is not that kind of film that's it's a weird netflix and chill session that really considering it's not on netflix but yeah you know what i mean um it's um it, it's well worth a look if you're interested mm. in exploitation like we said uh highly regarded by some very well-known filmmakers if you're interested mm. in australian cinema it's I, I think if you're interested in good cinema and being discomforted by something and it's, it's I will say there was a 2017 two-part TV remake of this, um, which does not look like it um, was anywhere near as brutal or as um, successful, shall we say. Um, so I feel like it was reasonably well regarded. I don't recall. It's got a reasonable rating, but, you know. One, but, eh, yeah. Uh, TV original. Yeah. See me originally if you can. Anyway, yeah. mm. thank you for indulging me in that one. I think that's an interesting choice, even if I do say so myself. I you think that while it was really hard for me to watch, and while I can't say that I particularly enjoy it, I like the fact that I can now say that I have seen this, and I am better for watching it because it is, I think it is an important movie, um, and certainly it is fantastic that it did not get lost into time. I think it's the kind of film that we make we do well in Australia, you know. Yeah. Uh, Survive in the Outback. You know, we've seen this is the anti crocodile dandy. Yeah. You could, you could probably put this more in line with something like Wolf Creek. Yeah. Yeah. But not a slasher film. No. Now, I have the keys. You do. And I am going further back in time. But I'm going to one with more easy outs than you gave me with this one but we are following chips rafferty and we are going to go to 1962 mutiny on the bounty ah well in the strange connection of his film as well exactly um and this is the one with marlon brando trevor howard richard harris hugh griffith it's one of the kind of legendary movies from the 60s and it's one that i've never seen i don't believe i've ever seen as well this has got um this is not the version with um, the Australian actor in it from Tasmania, whose name is escaping right now. Um, uh, oh my god! I have my Australia card pulled for this one. Unbelievable. Um, uh, the, uh, Paul Hogan. Mel Gibson was in one, of course. Oh, yes, um, yes. <laughs> but I believe it was. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, this is been, this has been made into a film many times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm. I, this is the Marlon Brando version. Yes. Uh, not the Mel Gibson version. So I'm mm. um, very curious mm. to get a look at so it. So it um, is available on Apple TV, um, and I am genuinely looking forward to this one because this 
going back to a, a movie set at sea in the 60s, there was a period where that was a very popular thing for Hollywood to create. And this was almost much like to, in modern cinema now. It's like, oh, if you want Oscar Oscar movie, you make a biopic of someone who recently died or a famous person who's coming towards the end of their life or something like that. This kind of thing, the epic at sea kind of thing, this was Hollywood's elite sort of thing. So I really want to see this. And it's got a young Marlon Brando in it. And he is, there's a reason why he was a legend in Hollywood. And Richard Harris as well. Mwah! Looking forward to it. So you have got plenty of places that you can go. I love um, Dr. Moreau is calling. <laughs> I think we did watch that already. Didn't you watch that? We did. We, we yeah, we watched that ah. for GT podcast, I think it was. Yeah. By the way, the actor I was thinking of was was uh, Errol Flynn. Oh was that um, the 40s version? I thought he was in a version of Mutiny in the Bounty, but um let me let me look into that. It was a, a yeah. film called Kids like Captain Blood. Um anyway. Mm. Um Errol Flynn was he's from Tassie, uh, was the one I was thinking of, but um Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he wasn't in the Mutiny in the Bounty film, but um, I can't see one. So anyway, uh, I was, was definitely in a bunch of kind of sea-based movies. Like he was, he was one of the actors that made the famous kind of putting the knife yeah. in the sails and sliding down. No, no pirate in their right mind would do that to their ship. <laughs> he was in a film called Captain Blood in 1935. So maybe, yes. maybe that's the one I'm I'm thinking of as opposed to. Mm. A, a mutiny in the valley type film but um exciting choice yeah yeah okay so where should we go now do you do you want to do the trek perspective before we go to the the next part of the show because i feel like both of us haven't had much chance to actually watch too much it's going to be a slightly shorter film this week uh film there i'm sure. so tired shorter <laughs> show this week you're right but and remarkably Mm. remarkably it's a shorter trek perspective this week as well it's to keep thinking not even get you in and out of here on time this time people goodness me ladies and gentlemen we started a little bit late but we're still on time out the door come on um, we uh we do try to deliver but uh yes we can go for trek perspective next um okay um let me just get things already here and we will Trek Respective. Play us out, Sammy. Ready to ready to go? Ready to go. Episode five of a Trek Respective, where we continue Michelle's deep dive down the Rote Warren, aka Hellscape, that is the uh the Star Trek film universe. For those who don't know, Michelle had never seen Star Trek before she lost a bet. Now she's watching all of them and she's going to tell us what she thinks. This week, we had the distinct pleasure of watching Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. For those uninitiated, when the newly christened Starship Enterprise's shakedown crew goes bald, cruise goes bally, Captain Kirk and crew put her into space dock for repairs, but an urgent mission interrupts their earthbound shore leave. A renegade Vulcan named Cybok has taken three ambassadors hostage on Nimbus 3, the planet of galactic peace. This event also attracts the attention of a Klingon captain 
wants to make a name for himself and sets out to pursue the Enterprise. Cybox Ragtag Army captures the Enterprise and takes her on a journey to the center of the galaxy in search of a supreme being. Uh, this is written and directed by William Shatner. He's also widely acknowledged as being the worst Star Trek film ever made. At least I think it is. I can't actually say that's what the results are. Michelle, what did you make of it? Can I just say, I absolutely loved this film. I thought it was fantastic. It was brilliant. Um, I just <laughs> thought it just needed just more of it. I wanted to see more. And I'm so happy that I've lost this bet and that I can watch all these films. And you're, you're, you're taking your first step into a larger universe. I, I um, This synopsis now, does not met square with what I heard while you were watching it. Can I just say, I watched the trailer to remind me of what I saw, and the trailer was brilliant. Two and a half minutes, I'm like, yeah, I'll watch two and a half minutes of this. Oh, lordy lord, that film was just, there was not enough clinkers in the world is all I can say. Those uninitiated clinkers are a brand of a variety of Australian candy. Michelle it was, was very traffic like signal and you buy it into it and inside they're either pink yellow or green i get very excited when i butt in and i get the pink i'm like yes the yellow i can deal the green is something to suffer through so this is just all green clinkers and say this is the green clinkers of star trek films this is the one i was going to maybe let you skip but i decided i think we should just you know for completionist's sake go there um, were there any redeeming characteristics for you? Um, the fact that I got to see all these movie, other movies there, like, for example, like it's like Star Trek went to Tatooine slash Mad Max set. So it's kind of like, wait, is this still Star Trek? Um, what didn't they go to Yosemite or Yosemite as I like to call it? I don't say sabotage, I say mm -hmm. sabotage. Uh, Yosemite, you're going to say Yosemite people, next time you see Yosemite, Yosemite, um, and if someone corrects you, just ask them, that's not how you pronounce it. Um, I'm just going to go it? with uh, Mikrave, so if, if what's her name can get away with that, I can get um, away with that. Yeah, the British person. Um, British cooking person. <laughs> whose name escapes me at this moment in time. There was a scene shot in Yosemite, fairly, I take it from your raucous laughter, you found it somewhat unconvincing. Special effects, there even is, I think there's a couple of quippy lines. Like I know this ship like the back of my hand and he bumps into it. Um, look, again, it's an episode being stretched into a film. And, and there was so much, I actually kind of liked the ideas that potentially it was going to deal with, which is God and fanaticism and um, how people start to follow a belief without actually verifying it and um, how we label things that we don't understand or we don't have any information on. I mean, super interesting stuff. And yet, no, absolutely um, does not deal with it. And also they had to have Spock be related to the fanatic. And I'm like, is this a reference to Star Wars again? Maybe I'm just seeing this through the wrong lens. Let me just say that the highlight of the film was when Rocky punched the Russian. So, you know, 
uh, we, we finally got around to Rocky Four palate cleanser after this, which is what Michelle's referring to. Um, and it was actually a real joy to watch a film with it, like an incredibly light on story. Rocky Four has a pathetically light story. It's basically simple of something that could be summarized in a sentence, much like Star Trek. And yet, it's ba- well, I think Rocky maybe Star Trek was aiming a little hard to tell a story about God and failed miserably, whereas Rocky was trying to tell a story about. A boxing match match between the Americans and the Russians. Didn't Rocky really also try and tell a story about God too? Come on. <laughs> um, I would enjoy the opportunity to try and figure that out, but I'd need some study time to try and put those um put those puzzle pieces together. Um, I have nothing good to say about this film. As I said, it's the most reviled Star Trek film. I think of at least of the original six. Um, maybe one of the next gen films might have had someone might have an argument about Nemesis being as bad as this. Um. If you really don't like the Abrams films, some people might say them. Um, I just think this is borderline unwatchable. Uh, the my personal favorite, the worst thing in the film was the fan dance by uh, uh, Uhura, which again I believe caused you to collapse into raucous laughter at the sight of her doing a an exotic dance to distract people. Yes, yes, and of course there was a couple of captains' log, which I just went, yeah, that's the stuff. So I think this is um, more in line of what we've been promising to do in terms of this is a pretty short one. So, well, what's there to say other than it exists? It exists. (laughs) (laughs) That happened, in other words. Um, That happened. We watched it. We aged while we watched it. And then we saw Rocky. Time we're not getting our lives back. Um, We should sue William Shatner for that. out of ten locked out of how many lockdowns out of ten do you think this is qualifies for? Is this a perfect score? Oh, this is a, this is eight lockdowns. Eight lockdowns, so we're back to a two. Uh, I think we revised last week. We revised motion picture back down to one out of ten. No, uh, what do you mean we revised motion picture? I think you decided you had no frame of reference, so you thought maybe. Well, you've been a little overly oh, generous. Was, yeah, the first one was quite bad and it went down. No, I actually. Yeah, no, okay. No, no, one still one out of 10 for the first one because I had no, and I was trying to be generous, but my generosity is is is, uh, is faltering much like the Enterprise. Um... <laughs> this is the third time in, the, in five films the Enterprise has been hijacked, we've figured out. And that's probably not really including the first one where it was kind of hijacked. Um, so they're kind of doing the same thing over again. They're going to really notice that in these films that they really are not extending their story range very much. No, I tell you what these people are doing. They're paying off their mortgages is what they're doing with these films. They were doing that. And how? There was one more original uh, cast film to come. Mm-hmm. And then, was... so what are we down? Five down? Eight to go. Oh, oh. You've never been closer to, to finishing before now. <laughs> I think you've got the worst. Out, I think you've got the worst out of a way, frankly. I think that, I think I think you'll find that they're not anywhere near as, as distasteful to you as they are. We uh, getting, are we getting nineties grunge now? Star Trek is that? Uh, what I, Star Trek Six, I think, is nineteen ninety one. So we are moving our way into the nineties, um, which is hopefully. A, I think six is pretty good. It's got a seven point two on IMDb, a sixty-five oh. meta score. Um, Can I just say I challenge your reliance on IMDb scores and Rotten Tomatoes because 
No. 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 I think it's indicative. No. I mean, it's had a Star Trek indicative five, of five what? Star Trek five at a five and a half. So it's a good 1.7 points higher at a 43 meta score. Fairly indicative if people didn't like it. But I many of you didn't like Star Trek four and it had a good score. So, you know, we, for you, it may mean nothing. And this is why, um, you know, non, non-compulsory voting fails. This is exactly what. I'll save this for the next film. Uh, Leonard Noy wrote it. Okay. And he wrote Star Trek three, which has been your favorite so far. Yes, the return of Spock. There yes. might be some emotion in this one. Um, so this is this one's more of a straight ahead Cold War story. So this is very much the Rocky Four of Star Trek films. The Rocky Four. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to a montage then. So anyway, we have a two out of ten for Star Trek Five. Michelle, uh, Michelle adds. She continues. She survives. Um, we had to get her <laughs> like a shirt. Rocky. I'm the. We had to get her a Star shirt that says Star Trek Survivor or something like that uh, at the end of this because she's been a real trooper. Thank you again for joining us, Michelle, in the Trek perspective. Pleasure to do so. Not and really back, <laughs> back to you, Speezy. I think that that may have uh, been you know review. <laughs> Sorry, your favourite? Yes, I think so. <laughs> Starting with the little help me sign. Fantastic. <laughs> just, props, props always help. And then just casually just changing the subject to Rocky to, Four. <laughs> and clinkers. We had a we had a conversation yeah, about clinkers. <laughs> You just never um, know what you're going to get with the Trek perspective, honestly. It's <laughs> uh, a wild card, Michelle, um, as being a complete outsider of the Trek world. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think it's, I'm, I'm very, very curious to see if her opinions of the films pick up as we get mm. into the more nuance. I, I've mm. noticed that watching these, I haven't seen the originals for a long time. Mm. I think I said that last week. Um, I haven't seen five. Oh, God, why would you go back and watch five? It's terrible. But um, they look dated. They look really badly dated now. Yeah. And, and Michelle constantly points out, hey, this is made after Star Wars. Star Wars looks so much better than this. Mm-hmm. And I think from memory, a lot of the special effects were done by ILM as well. Yeah. For Star Trek. I don't know what it is. They're just more ambitious than what that George Lucas was doing, but mm. it looked significantly worse than a lot of the films going around um, at the uh, at the time. So, for example, so that film, Star Trek Fine, had a $25 million budget, I think, from memory. Mm. On Friday night last week, I went to the cinema. We can call this a review if we like. I went to the <laughs> cinema to see Cinema Fiasco. Um, those who don't live in Melbourne, Cinema Fiasco is a regular cinema comedy event that happens um from time to time uh where they'll show a really bad film and there'll be two comedians in the audience with microphones talking for the film and basically taking the piss Mm -hmm. um and last week we saw life force have you ever seen life force i don't think so but the name rings a bell it was directed by toby hooper in 1985 in britain uh, and email. it is based on a book called The Space Vampires. A race of space vampires <laughs> arrive in London, infect the populace, beginning an apocalyptic descent into chaos. Um, and interesting, the reason why I mention it is this film also had a $25 million budget, 
was made, I think, two or three years before Star Trek V. Um, it, it, probably the most interesting um, casting aspect of the film is it stars Patrick Stewart in one of his very early uh, film roles mm. and fixes his first on-screen kiss. And the first year kiss is with Steve Railsback, the star of the film. Um, so okay. was breaking down barriers. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail about this film. This film sucks. There's a reason why <laughs> the whole film is about taking the piss out of it. The, the antagonist is Space Girl, played by Matilda May, who is naked through the, almost the entirety of the film. Wow. There is an extraordinary amount of full frontal um, female nudity. Apparently, you weren't allowed to have frontal male nudity at the time in Britain. So, because the penis is just not as attractive as the vagina. <laughs> so is that the official British censorship perspective, was it? Yes, that, um, that is what the BBFC would say, would state. I'm sure they would have said something like that. But in general, um, I just encourage you to have a look at some of the stills on IMDb of the, <laughs> the uh, vampires. that They get their life force sucked. They don't suck blood. The space vampires suck the life force out of people when they turn into, like, husks and there's these really hilarious looking um puppets that they built for the film and um oh, dear. it's if the film was written by dan o'bannon Damn. who wrote the original alien film yeah. and i think if i'm not mistaken he wrote the warriors as well um yes uh maybe not uh, i could be wrong but anyway he's a well-known um definitely wrote the his credit as a writer of the original um alien um, dark star Return of the Living Dead. No, he didn't do Warriors. My bad. Um, but apparently he wrote a screenplay for Total Recall, the good one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> Everyone has a bad day, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, what the thing was. Yeah. Aside from the stupid vampire puppets and the naked space girl. Yeah. Um, and just about everything else that happens in the film. <laughs> It looked better than Star Trek V. Wow. You know, and it's garbage, you know. You've got to kind of wonder, I mean, for the difference of where that money is going, though, is like you've got to think at that point, Shatner was probably demanding a lot and Leonard Nimoy was probably demanding a lot. And so most of that budget was probably on the cast themselves rather than so like oh yes we're gonna have better special effects and get relative unknown people i mean i'm not saying the special effects were good in life they were better. That's, that's the, they were somehow more convincing and not as laughably awful a lot of them weren't as laughably awful as as they are in star trek um five i mean i know there's is the opening sequence just to um, first contact, where you know they're zooming in on on John Luke's eye from like you know out in space and oh yeah, his... they was that's what they wanted to do at the start of this film, but they didn't have a technology, so um I got to give it. I guess they just couldn't. Maybe their eyes were bigger than their stomach. They wanted to do things that they just didn't have the technology or budget to do yeah. at the time. But Jesus Christ, I'm very curious. Once we get into the Abrams films, is your opinion going to turn around? Like at least the first two Abrams films were pretty. These films, Star Trek films, I feel like really were made for people who watch the TV show mainly, right? Yeah. You know, I, I think right, they... from, yeah. even from um, kind of uh, 
the 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 what's what's the last one of the original guys called? What's the one you're watching uh, next week? Uh, Star Trek Six: The Quest for Peace. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, the forgotten, the undiscovered, the undiscovered country, undiscovered country. Yeah, that one. You were right when you were talking to Michelle about that feeling more like a Cold War movie. It. It's. I think. I feel like going back to those movies. That is when they started more writing them as films rather than extensions of a TV show. Um, she is right. They are the ones that they do feel like these things would have been stuff they would have made an episode about, mm, and maybe a mm, two-part episode. Yeah, but they don't support a feature film. Yeah, especially well, it's not this one. There yeah. were some interesting ideas in Fight. Believe it or not, watching it again, you're like. There's some interesting ideas they could have played with here. But mm. again, a bit like Star Trek The Motion Picture, it takes 40 fucking minutes to get to the interesting ideas even yet mentioned. <laughs> I've got, Shatner has never directed a feature film again, as far as I know. That's a good thing. Probably. Probably. Uh, he's not a great... But I'll move off Cinema Fiasco quickly, if it's okay. Yes. And talk please. a little about the palate cleanser this week. Yes. Finally, got around to watching Rocky Four. Rocky the quest, Four, the quest for peace. The quest, uh, <laughs> and that is strangely kind of fitting. <laughs> um, no, 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 quest for peace is Superman Four. Um, Bucky Balboa proudly holds the world heavyweight boxing championship, but a new challenger has stepped forward. Drago, six foot four, two hundred and sixty-one pound fighter, uh, who has the backing of the Soviet Union. I must break you. If he dies, he dies. <laughs> um, of course, uh, Drago is played iconically by yep. the great Dolph Lundgren. Um, yep. I always when they say pounds, I'm like, how many? What, the, what is 261 pounds? Like, it says 118 kilos. I, I don't know. I don't know about boxing. I guess that's quite heavy, but. Um, 118 kilos? Mm. That's. Mm, one and a half of me. Yeah, I assume, I assume. I don't know if that's actually what Lundgren weighed over time, but he is huge. Yes. Yeah, and he stands quite a bit over um, Stallone. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a famous story that Stallone actually asked him to hit him for real in some of his scenes to make it look good. Yeah, and end up like breaking his heart or something. Almost he hit him so oh. hard. As a St- Stallone decided for shooting, he wanted to do it. After three takes of hitting Rocky, taking shots to the ribs, Stallone felt a burning in his chest but ignored it. Later that night, he had difficulty breathing and was taken to a nearby emergency room. It was discovered that his blood pressure was over 200 and he had to be flown on a low-altitude flight from Canada to St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, where he remained in intensive care for four days. What had happened was that Lundgren had punched him so hard in the chest, Stallone's heart had slammed up against his breastbone and began to swell, cutting off a blood supply and restricting the oxygen flow through the body. Um, so at least that's the oh. rumored to have happened, at least. So, mm. um, he was a big dude, like, yeah. um, he had worked as a bouncer, I think, in mm. Australia. He, people, I, I assume people know this, but he has like a master's degree in chemical engineering or something from yeah. the University of Sydney at Olf Lundgren. So, he's not a fucking idiot, he's actually, yeah. he's, he's, he's Swedish, but, um, you know, I was telling Michelle, oh, he's just, she was like, oh, he's just a big, you know, you know big tough guy. I'm like, he's actually pretty smart. He's a, you know, you don't, they just hand out master's degrees. That's actually and even he, a throwaway line in the first Expendables movie. And he had a Fulbright scholarship 
to the to MIT in, in Boston, where the world's top engineering school. So again, I know a little bit about those sorts of things. Mm. And again, they don't just hand them out to anyone. No. So it's an interesting aspect to the guy. Yeah. Um, but you know, he is kind of perfect for Drago in a sense. I don't know that he is has a great deal of range for an actor. No. <laughs> but a little bit like we talked a couple few years ago with Wonder Woman. Mm-hmm. And Gal Gadot, when you just get an actor and you just give them something that's completely within their range to do and don't ask them to step outside of that. A little bit like when I asked Gal Gadot to do acting in um, uh, the Kenneth Branagh murder on the, yeah. uh, the Nile. Uh, no, no, she can't act. You, you don't need her to act. She can stand there and look statuesque. That's really her skill set. Yep. Um, this is what he does. This is, the, yep. this is like when Schwarzenegger was asked to do Terminator. Mm-hmm. He hadn't really had any range at that point. He just had to stand there and look scary mm-hmm. and act like a robot. Perfect. Yep. What he's born for. This yep. is the robot Drago was born for. Yeah. What I did notice um, watching this again, and it was interesting watching Michelle, who hadn't seen it since the 80s, um, was how little story there is to this. I was sort of trying to hint at this in the um, mm. Trek Respective this week. There's not much to this film at all. It's very slight. Yeah. Um, it's an hour and 31 minutes. I would hazard a guess. 15 to 20 minutes of that is footage from previous films. Yeah. Or throwbacks. Yeah. There are at least three montages in this film. I need a uh, montage. <laughs> okay, you can't take it that seriously without thinking of that song. <laughs> um, always fade out in the montage, you know. Um, <laughs> there's the famous there's the famous training sequence, of course. That, you know, I think it's mm-hmm. been big family guy took the piss out of it and stuff yep. like that. Yeah. There's at least two other montages in the film. Um, mm-hmm. And you're like, Oh wow. Like um, how many montages is too many, even for a Rocky film. There is never too many. I don't know. It, it, but it's a, so you take the montages. Then we add in the fact that the first five minutes is just clips from the last film. Mm-hmm. Then we show other clips later on of, um, you know, their friendship between Rocky and uh, Apollo Creed, Mm -hmm. who, of course, famously is killed in the ring by by Drago. Yeah. Um, And Rocky should have thrown in the towel, you know. Yeah. Um, It's it's probably an hour of actual film story. And that's kind of like, I think it's basically, it's a very basic three-act film. There's Mm -hmm. the setup. Uh, there's the fight with, in the fight with Apollo Creed. Mm-hmm. Then there's the training in the middle, and then there's the fight with Drago. Mm-hmm. And somehow it works. Yeah, like Keep story simple. It's incredibly story and directed by Stallone. Mm-hmm. Um, people forget he won an Academy Award for the first one. Yeah, you know it's interesting. It has a six point eight audience score. It has a forty meta score. So obviously the critics didn't like it when it came mm-hmm. out, but it's endured. It's in. Yeah. It's, it's like I mean, apart from the original Rocky, this is the other one like that has mm-hmm. stuck around in people's memories as mm-hmm. you know, one of the. And Drago is probably the most up there with Apollo Creed as the most memorable non-Rocky character. I mean, maybe Adrian, I suppose, but um, like he's he's an, he's a, he's become an iconic character in in years. I can't uh, believe um, that you didn't mention Thunderlips. Thunderlips, Hulk Hogan. <laughs> yeah. um, say his name in the reality. If you say it too many times, he appears. Oh, good Lord. And he says something racist. Yes. Um, <laughs> that's uh, a hint for what I've been watching. Sorry? I said, that's a hint for what I've been watching. 
Uh, Hemsworth is going to play Hogan in the film. Yeah, interesting. That's going to be interesting. Mm. I was reading about the next Star Trek film, and apparently at one point uh, Hemsworth had turned it down because he found his script underwhelming. That's Chris, by the way. Not, um, yeah, but not the discount Hemsworths. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and you guys go, hmm, he found the script so underwhelming he didn't want to do it. But Spiderhead, that's a mm-hmm. good script. I want to do that one. Mm-hmm. How bad must that Star Trek script have been? I think the difference is maybe he had an opportunity to get his name on as a producer. I am certain he would have got on as a producer if he wanted to do a Trek film. No, I, I mean, well, yeah, maybe. I mean, like, he's kind of a pretty big star now. But anyway. <laughs> he hasn't got a new movie that's just released? No. Um, I uh, it's, it's so much fun, this movie. I don't understand why. It doesn't make any sense. It's, it's actually a very lazy and brief film. Mm. But it's a re- it was actually a really nice palate cleanser compared, mm. to, compared to New Star Trek V. Like I said, they were trying to do something really big and intellectual with Star Trek V, and they failed miserably. Mm. Whereas, you know, Stallone here aimed at a target one meter high and mm-hmm. hit it square in the middle, and it was a lot of fun. Yep. So yep. if you haven't seen Rocky Four lately, it's always worth going back and have another look at it. It's eminently quotable. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of fun. It's super cheesy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it's got lots of those rock songs that, that Rocky is famous for and the training montage, one of the great training montages. And Michelle was watching. So at one point, he climbs a mountain in Siberia. And she's like, oh, is he going to do the arm thing? Is he going to do the arm thing? Yay! Struggle! <laughs> um, it's so much fun. I mean, like, and it's just fascinating. But then, yeah, this one, I mean, the next one was absolute trash. Oh. Again, that like you you were saying about having interesting ideas in the last Star Trek, um, it's an interesting concept that they have for for Rocky Five, but it's just not well done. It's bad. Rocky yeah. Five is bad. I mean, we're not doing a series on Rocky just yet. Um, no. No <laughs> we've got some ideas on what we might do after a Trek perspective, but um, mm-hmm. uh, Rocky the Rocky series won't be it, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. But it was a, it was nice to get a nice nice, nice juicy piece of eighties cheese just to wash yep. that taste away of the eighties crud. But um, <laughs> Shatner gave us in Star Trek Five. Nicely done, nicely done. All right, now I had forgotten that a couple of weeks ago I watched um, a new movie, and I hinted at it because I said if you say the name a few times, he appears. I watched the Jordan Peele produced 2021 ah, Candyman. This came in with a lot of hype, and then it disappeared quickly. What did you make of it? There's a reason. It's not good. Is the reason why it came and went. It is vapid. It is quite well produced overall. Like it looks quite good, but there is no. Like Jordan Peele has come out of a comedy background largely known for to deliver some of the best chilling, horrific and intelligently created movies of the last, what, 10 years at this point. And there is none of that here. So for those who don't know, um, this is a, a sequel to the horror film series, Candyman, which started in 1992 um, and it returns to the now gentrified Chicago neighborhood where the legend began. 
in present day, many years after the last of Cabrini Towers was torn down, Anthony and his partner move into a loft in the now gentrified Cabrini. A chance encounter with an old timer exposes Anthony to the true story behind Candyman. Anxious to use these macabre details in his studio as fresh grist for paintings, because he's a painter, he unknowingly opens a door to a complex past that unravels his own sanity and unleashes a terrifying wave of violence. And that makes it sound more interesting than it is. The, the idea of revisiting somewhere that has been gentrified is interesting because there is so much about those environments and because of the genesis of the Candyman, if you are aware of the Candyman series is quite interesting and there is a lot of social context in there like so many of the classic horror movies um think of the george a romero zombie movies and how they tackled race and um all the second ones would be good at consumerism and that kind of yes, thing exactly and they they what marvel is doing now with their superhero movies of dressing them up as one thing and um, delivering something else that's kind of what made a lot of these horror movies so good and so the idea of kind of digging up a painted over whitewashing of history kind of thing is an interesting concept but they don't do enough with it and the fact that um I am going to definitely butcher his name, and I really apologize. Um, Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, who plays Anthony McCoy, um, he's an artist who is kind of almost like chasing, chasing likes and chasing success at any cost. And it kind of cheats the idea of it and that, use of society to deliver more and even when they start to try and talk about um the fame that he starts getting because of the artwork that he creates as his mind and his world starts to change and he learns more about the candy man and the legend behind it even then it doesn't go anywhere particularly interesting and it's only just a boring sprinkle on the top of just emptiness beneath there's elements of sort of like racial profiling and um sort of like a corrupt cops still being in the uh, cabrini towers area which again would be interesting and would be compelling especially if that is something that still maintain persists in this gentrified area when everything else has been forcibly the history has been forcibly removed or purposefully forgotten but again it just ends up being this lackadaisical story that doesn't go anywhere it doesn't develop anything you don't get any emotional investment in any of the characters and you don't really feel any threat because you're being shown, oh, this happened because of this. And like, 
Well, yeah, he was fucked over and he went on a killing spree. I, I feel more sympathy for the killer than I do for everyone else who died because they were cunts. And none of the characters are particularly redeeming. They're all self-serving. And it's just really, really disappointing. Now, the director is Nia DaCosta. And this one was someone she is directing the new Marvels movie coming out next year apparently and i'm curious as to why she got this that particular job because Candyman, this movie is not big on special effects it's not big on action and that makes me worried about what the marvel's movie is going to be because it's a trend that we've seen with some of the more recent marvel movies of them trying to tick social justice boxes without actually doing what a movie's supposed to do of telling an interesting, entertaining, or purposefully confronting story such as Waking Fright. And so um, we're going to see a very boring boring movie come forward. It was a bit boring anyway, right? Like, <laughs> come on. Yeah. It's, um, a, it's a Captain Marvel. There you go. Captain Marvel, I mean, I don't know. I haven't got around to watching Miss Marvel yet, but you didn't give it a glowing review. No. Um, and I assume it's got what's her face, WandaVision in it. Um, uh, what's her name? Monica Rambeau. I would presume so. Um, there's not much that seems to be known about it at this point. Um, I, I mean, I, I guess I would argue it doesn't matter who directs a Marvel film now. I mean, they went out, they got Sam Raimi, one of yep. the greatest comic book and horror directors of all time, making a comic book horror film hybrid, mm -hmm. and then said, just make me a Marvel film. Yeah. That looked like pretty much mm -hmm. any other Marvel film you've ever seen, except that it had Bruce Campbell in it punching himself in the face. Yeah. Yep. Right? You mean, why bother? Why yeah. bother getting Sam Raimi? Get some kid out of school who mm -hmm. can, you know, who can competently shoot. And then get some get the guy. I mean, remember it was a story about um Kate Shortland who did Black Widow. Um oh, yeah. and someone who else who passed on the film before Kate Shortland was hired. I mean Kate Shortland does our house Australian films. Yeah. Never done anything like Marvel before. But you're right, she ticked the box. They wanted a woman to direct it, which is fine. Mm -hmm. Um sure, probably I mean, you know, you wanted a female action director. Catherine Bigelow is one of the best in the world. Um but she has her own them? style, which doesn't fit the Marvel template. No, why would you do that? Because she, she's probably not going to do it because she want to do it her way. And she's probably mm -hmm. a lot more expensive than Kate. Um, yeah. but someone else passed, someone else who was a previous choice to go in line to direct that film said she passed because she was told she wouldn't have to worry about directing the action sequences. Someone else would do that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Now, I don't know if that actually happened. That was a story that was reported. Mm. So I guess with the Marvels, it doesn't really matter who, who, who near the cost of the director or somebody else, because it'll just make it look like every other Marvel film. But yeah. interestingly, the least Marvel film I think we've seen come out of Marvel in the last five years was probably um, The Eternals by Chloe Zhao. Yeah. Um, but uh, she's a she's, she's an Academy Award winning director. I have a feeling she might get a little bit more mm -hmm. leeway to make films her way. And yeah. despite the fact it didn't look like your standard Marvel film, I didn't make it good. Mm. Um, anyway, I don't want to get into Marvel talk, but yeah, yeah, <laughs> I think you, I can see your point, but they are, mm. they're looking to hire people because of who they are, not because of what they've done. Yeah. And it's not and... to say she can't, she can't work or she can't direct. Mm. She obviously can, but you know, 
there was once upon a time where you were hired on, on your basis of what you could do. Mm. So right, here's an interesting concept. Here's an interesting director. Let's see what they do together. But no. So let me play devil's advocate again for one second. Mm -hmm. if, um, if Michelle were here, she'd probably point out to me that Robert Zemeckis made some, I think the first two or three films he made were complete and utter flops. Mm -hmm. And then he got given back to the future. Yep. So, you know. It's fair. It's, it's probably, maybe it's not as new as we think it is. I will say on Robert Zemeckis, he's gone back to making crap. He's <laughs> doing the next fucking um, Disney Plus movie of Pinocchio again with Tom fucking Hanks. It's like, what is the... Mm. <clears throat> it might not Did you like the original Candyman or have you seen the original? I have only seen the first one and I liked it. I found it scary. I found it was bloody. It was it was your quintessential early 90s horror movie. It wasn't as brutal and horrific as something like Nightmare on Elm Street or it, as suspenseful as Halloween or um, the the Michael Myers. Um, uh, sorry, no, no, uh, no. Jason Voorhees. What one's no, Friday the 13th films. Right, yeah, thank you. There you go. Um, they they had a certain element to them that that made them chilling, um, but it was like it was the first horror movie that I chose to watch that my brother had did not tell me this is a good one to watch. So it's got a it's got that nostalgia factor. Is like it was my first horror movie that I picked, and the idea I remember. Um, so like all the kids in my school after if after it came out, everyone you couldn't go into the bathroom without hearing someone going Candyman in front of a mirror because there was like just this a simple myth and that 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 kind of touch of magic to the character that just kind of captured the young person's imagination. This just doesn't have it because everyone's a fucking 28 to 35 year old jaded person who somehow, even though he's a moderately successful actor, um, artist, it, it's, it's the friend syndrome. Like no actor in Joey Tribbiani's lifestyle is going to be able to afford an apartment where he has and have lived the life that he lives. And Phoebe Buffay having this, actually seems very comfortable life and everyone seems to like oh don't worry about where their money comes from just imagine the fantasy it's fine but it's just unlike in friends or sex in the city like you watched last week where it doesn't matter and it's kind of like that escapism these guys are narcissists and just not nice people so like i don't want to be like these dickheads fuck you so there's no one to be your gateway into this and the fact that it is, it firmly plants itself as a sequel to realistically only one good movie in the franchise from 20 years ago. How many were there originally? I don't even, I only know the original. Three, I think. Oh, okay. Um, I, I guess I, if I saw Candyman back in the day, my friend, um, uh, my friend George and I, other George, not you, um, 
uh, we go and watch, I go into his house. He lived literally around the corner from me mm. and uh, we would watch horror films. And um, we watched the entire Friday the 13th series. And then I would sprint home just in case. Um, uh, but I remember seeing Candyman the original and being deeply unimpressed by it. And then mm. just being kind of really surprised when mm. this film came out, finding out that the original was so fondly remembered by so many people. Mm. Man, I thought it sucked, but um, yeah. I'm wrong. Um, right. There's three it. original plus this one. I assume this ignores the second and third one. Um, well, I haven't seen the other two, so I do not know. Um, I'm mildly curious to go back and watch Candyman Farewell to the Flesh because it is directed by Bill Condon, who um, has had somewhat of a resurgence um, in the last few years. He um, directed the um, generally critically approved Gods and Monsters. Um, uh, he did Kinsey, Dream Girls, uh Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 1 and Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. <clears throat> He's come back into the, the public eye. So I'm curious to see what he would have done. But at the same time, I don't really have any interest in going back and filling my bingo card of Candyman movies. This was just so disappointing, so woefully disappointing, because not only did Jordan Peele produce this, he helped screenwriter, and I think those, just based off of the level of intelligence that he has brought into all of his movies, which he's also been this, the writer for, those interesting nuggets of ideas, like the gentrification of the area and the attempt at bringing a new kind of social commentary into it, I think that's where he came from. And I have a feeling that he didn't really do a screenplay, more general outline here you go hand it off i've got to go and produce and make a movie over here so i saw a lot of comments on the user reviews on indb here a mm. lot of people who are complaining and don't like this film i don't like it because of her politics interesting um i don't know what they're expecting <laughs> did yeah. you see did you see get out i mean yeah <laughs> subtext there just just, might have missed that just 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 a touch just a touch um i think that they could have got so much fucking harder with all of the political social commentary that is in this movie and it would have made this movie so much more interesting but yeah it's woefully disappointing it is not a good horror movie it is not a good social commentary movie it is vapid it is disappointing. Thumbs down from you. Yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just a touch. Can I take it off a, a, a negative note and talk about something a little lighter? Yes, you can. So I watched a film on Disney Plus that I found. One of the things I like to do occasionally mm -hmm. is I'll type in most overlooked films of the year so far. Um, mm -hmm. In most years, you get a lot of results. In the last couple of years, it's been rough because, well, geez, there hasn't been a whole lot of stuff mm -hmm. made, but. Um, one of the films that came up uh, late last year, early this year, like, um, in that search was a film called Plan B. And that is now viewable on uh, Disney Plus. Mm -hmm. Which was, I assume it's a Hulu film, so I guess that's why. It is not the kind of film you would usually associate with Disney. Okay. It follows a straight-laced high school student and her slacker best friend who, after a regrettable first sexual encounter, have 24 hours to hunt down a Plan B pill in America's heartland. 
Um, yep, that's definitely what you, not what you'd expect on Disney. Um, and I thought it was a interesting film to check out this week, given what's been happening in that country in the last mm-hmm. couple of weeks. Has happened in oh. the last couple of weeks in that country with their Supreme Court rulings of you know, Roe v. Wade being overturned. Um, interestingly, I, this film was made in 2021, mm-hmm. so before that really started to become, you know, I guess it, we knew in May that this was going to happen. Mm. So it seems well before that. But the film clicks in very nicely to that narrative. Mm. So uh, our main characters are Sunny, who is of South Asian descent. I guess we would say probably Indian, I'm guessing. Indian, yes, I think I'd say to say Indian. Um, and uh, Hispanic or Latinx, if you like that term. I know a lot of people don't, mm-hmm. whatever. Uh, mm. But they are, I guess that's a heritage but mm-hmm. they are both American. So I guess they are both first generation. It's insinuated they're both first generation um, Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sonny is the stereotypical, um, you know, good girl, straight-laced character who has excellent grades. Her mother is portrayed as being very, uh, putting a lot of pressure on her to mm-hmm. get good grades. You've got to be plus on this. What you do explain what you did wrong, you know. <laughs> I'm not putting it. Okay, I shouldn't do the accent, but that, that's genuinely the accent she has. It um, came off Russian. <laughs> I have a. I do not do accents well. I do the Australian accent well. That's about it. Eh? Um, oh, yeah. Yes, fucking I. Yeah. Um, whereas uh, Lupe is the more free spirited of the two, mm-hmm. you know, plays up to being the more sexually experienced, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sort of, it's a fairly standard sort of, you know, chemistry. And they are best friends mm. at, at high school. Um, and in a shockingly familiar trope, uh, Sonny has a crush on a guy at school who seems unattainable. Mm-hmm. In an effort to try and get close to him, she organizes a party at her house while her parents, her mother, her, doesn't mention her father, I don't think, her mother is out of town. Mm-hmm. We've never seen this in cinema, but we are through mm-hmm. the looking glass here, people. Mm-hmm. Um, Brave new world. Um, it's it's a little coming off a little American pie here. Um, at the party, um, her, her her love interest um, disappears with uh, one of the uh, cool, pretty mean girls from school. In her, shall we say, grief, mm-hmm. and you know, losing her opportunity with the guy she likes, she ends up having sex with. Um, uh, sort of a, a guy who is a over the top evangelical Christian <laughs> in her bathroom. Um, <laughs> think despite using protection, mm-hmm. he doesn't really go to plan, and she, you know protection doesn't seem to have worked. You know they didn't really follow the instructions on the packet. It seems you know, um, you know uh, so. Uh, after the con- finding the condom inside her the day after her sexual encounter, very drunken sexual encounter, it should be noted, mm-hmm. uh, she freaks out because, you know, she's the straight-laced, straight-A, going-places kid mm. who couldn't possibly tell her mother that mm. she made, she had sex, premarital sex and mm. maybe pregnant and, you know, had a party. And she so her first thought of call, along with Lupe, is to go to the chemist to sell to buy the plan beetle. Mm-hmm. Um hopefully I don't need to tell people what a plan B pill is. If you don't know, Google it. But it's essentially 
you know, uh, it's a, it's an abortion pill. Like, yes, he called that, but you got to take it within the certain Americans probably would definitely call it an abortion pill. I guess so, but you know, um, Google it. I guess if you don't know what it is, it, um, you swallow it, and inside your body, SEAL Team Six just takes out any foreign invaders. I'm gonna keep going. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, this reboot of Fantastic Voyage is taking a very strange turn. <laughs> Um, so they go to the chemist. The chemist is played by uh, Jay Tran- Chandra Saker. Um, oh, yeah. uh, who, of, uh, Broken Lizard group, right? Broken Lizard, so Super Troopers, mm. uh, Dukes of Hazard, that kind of thing. Um, and he, once he finds out how old she is, he says, I choose not to sell you a pill. He's like, You can't do that. And he goes, Yes, in this state, we have a claw- conscience clause, and my con to have a clear conscience, I choose not to sell you a pill. Wow. And so as we start to see that that um that subtext in here of you know mm-hmm. the American reproductive rights are kind of fucked mm-hmm. for women. Um in that you know Vakis people can just choose not to sell you the thing you need um because of how old you are. They decide the best way to deal from here is to visit the Planned Parenthood clinic, the nearest being a three hour drive away. Mm-hmm. Again, this is in a, another little thing to think about with, you know. Uh, and it'd be even worse now because so many of these places that do exist would probably have to have closed. Mm. And they, uh, so it turns into a comedy. I should note, this is a comedy. <laughs> um, <laughs> but with a fairly serious topic at its heart. Yeah. Um, this turns into uh, Harold and Kumar go to White Castle for women. <laughs> okay. Without the weed. Okay. Um, and that's kind of a tone with it's it's kind of a goofy, um, slightly raunchy comedy, um, but with a more serious message at heart rather than just a couple of stoners who really want a burger. Okay. Um, as they try and work their way across their state to get to Grand Rapids to get to the Planned Parenthood clinic in time. For um, Sunny to get the get the the medical treatment that she requires, mm. I don't want to give too much away, other than giving me that heads up because this is a wonderful film. Okay, this is a fantastic film. This film deals with all those things that we complain about. You and I being cis white men who are probably too old and bitter at the world. Um, <laughs> Has anyone really still- anyone listen to us? Um, but we, we talked, you just talked about it, like representation, window dressing. Yeah. We hire Nia the Costa because of who she is mm-hmm. and what she repre- that represents because not enough African-American women get to direct films and shit, yeah, they don't. Mm-hmm. So we hire somebody who doesn't seem to have the runs on the board mm. to do the job at a, doesn't do a very good job according to you. Mm. Um, here we have a story about women by women directed by uh, Natalie Morales, um, who I am not instantly familiar with, but mm. um, the mainly act and actor. She was in Parks and Rec um, okay. and Girls, I think. Hasn't done a whole lot in terms of directing, but I would not be putting it past it for her to do more because she really shows her chops here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the stars uh, of the film, uh, Sunny is played by Kuho Verma. Uh, Lupe is played by Victoria Morales, so it's about women, played mm-hmm. by young women, mm-hmm. um, who are young women of colour. 
mm-hmm. um, from very diverse backgrounds. So, I mean, we, we hear, you don't see a lot of cinema, I guess. I can't think of a lot of cinema that deals with um, Indian American people. No. Uh, and there will be a lot of them. They would be a very big subsection. We talk, we've talked a lot about Asian American cinema lately. Mm. Yeah. Um, all everything all everywhere all at once. Oh my god, how good was that? Um, crazy rich Asians. Yep. Uh yeah, this is more that's more your Southeast Asian mm. cultures, you know, the South Asian cultures of, of people from you know Pakistan. We're seeing that now a little bit with Ms. Mm-hmm. Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, here with um people from India. So that's really great to see a big part mm-hmm. of the American community getting someone on the screen looks like them. Um Hispanic community obviously much more representation but um uh, probably still not enough and generally up until like the last few years at the very least it's been somewhat stereotypical yes they're like yeah. drug dealers or whatever every time they yeah i just love it they should they like they, they put that filter that yellow filter over everything that happens in mexico mm-hmm um, and they have like that rap song, the gasolina, um, <laughs> um, um, which is, 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 a, is a huge Never catch. sing that at karaoke, dude. <laughs> oh, I've sing that at karaoke. Um, <laughs> um, that's going to happen. That's, that's a guarantee. Um, you have to be there. You have to do a duet with me on uh, Ice Ice Baby. Okay. <laughs> I will have to learn the dance routine. To the extreme, like a chump, like a candle. <laughs> um, there's something in there for all of us. But so uh, the other thing to mention here is it might be a slight spoiler, mm. is that Lupe is actually um, LGBT. She's, she's um, okay. gay or bi. Mm-hmm. Um, and none of it feels tacked on. None of it feels... You know, uh, as rammed into the story as it is in so many other stories now. Mm. It's like this is here because we needed a gay character, we mm. needed an African American character, we needed an, an you know an Asian character, we needed a Latino character. Tick 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 tick. Yes, we've got. We ticked all the diversity boxes. It felt natural. It felt organic. It didn't mm. feel exploitative. It didn't feel, um, you know, like I was being lectured to mm. by the film. It just fine she's gay right it yeah. just is but also it deals with that in a really interesting way in the fact that her best friend doesn't know she's gay yeah because of where they live in so this is a real story about living in uh, i um you've been to the us a little bit depending which part of a country you go to it's like going to a completely different country yeah you know like i've stayed in rural pennsylvania in 2016 mm-hmm. and i went straight from there to new york city and it was like night and day you know yeah. like uh, yeah. It's like being in a different country, you know. If you were gay in New York City, like you know, who cares, really? You know, mm-hmm. hopefully, I'm talking. I mean, you tell me I'm wrong, but in other parts of the country, it's still a fucking big deal. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, I really love how they handled all of that diversity because I mean, we talked about it with the Eternals last year. Mm-hmm. Eternals was kind of a crap film, mm-hmm. but they somehow got the diversity right in that yeah. film. Yeah, it's weird. Um, cause that just felt natural and normal and not mm-hmm. crammed in there. It felt really organic and the same thing here, yep. natural, organic, and it fit the story and it didn't take over the story. The story didn't stop mm. to explain, you know, the show, Hey, look, look how diverse we're being over here. Mm-hmm. It just flowed into the story beautifully. Mm. And they've managed to also tell, um, a really important and interesting story 
about reproductive rights in the United States in a goofy, raunchy, teen you know, sex comedy, which I think takes a great deal of skill. Yeah. Um, regular listeners and viewers of a show will be probably sick of me talking about it over the years, but the best film made about the uh, war on terror was Harold and Kumar go to Guantanamo Bay mm-hmm. um, because people might have actually seen that one. Yeah. <laughs> they, they probably didn't see all the others. Mm. Um, and that fun- it was also, it was funny and it was political. So mm-hmm. hard to get right. They've done the same thing here. I don't think it's as good as that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to win any awards. You know, some people might find parts of it distasteful if you're, you know, um, religious or you particularly disagree, I guess, with the film's politics, which are pretty much, again, the film's politics, I don't think it's hiding where it stands. Mm. Um, the end might be considered a bit schmaltzy, but mm. I don't know. I kind of feel like if John Hughes were alive today, this might be the kind of film he'd be making. I, I think he's dead. That. Hopefully he's dead. <laughs> he just killed the man if he's We've not. We've just killed him. <laughs> no, he's dead to uh, us. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're dead, John. Um, I'm, I'm sure, I, I thought he was dead. He is dead. He's been dead since uh, for 10 years. Here's 2009. Um, we're on the pulse. I know John didn't necessarily make deeply political films, um, but it's, it's, and maybe it's not as good as a John Hughes film, but I think it's, mm. it's in that ballpark of a kind of film he mm. might have made. Yeah. Um, you know, this is not overlooked the, some of the more racist stuff that happened in his films, yeah. Long Duck Wong or whatever his name was. Um, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's uh, I would strongly recommend this to, to you. I would strongly recommend this to anybody. If you've got young girls, young kids, uh, if you're comfortable, with, you know, it's over the age of, you know, 13, 14, 15 kind of thing. I think you probably know about most of this shit anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's fun. It's representative. It's diverse. And mm-hmm. it really tells, it really just grams that message home that, you know, um, you're really putting people into a tough spot where they can make a mistake, like a, a one night stand that goes wrong and mm. the protection doesn't work. And there you go. You're really putting someone in a spot where they, they can't actually do anything about that mm. mistake. Yeah. Um, and to a lot of people that might actually ruin their life or make a big dent in it. Mm. Great. Excellent. Really, I'll make really sure good. I check it out. Now I'm going to finish us off, if you don't mind, with uh, just putting my thoughts out there. Not too spoilery for Stranger Things, uh, Stranger Things Four Part Two, the last two episodes, massive marathon. It broke, that broke the internet, apparently. Yes, broke Netflix. Um, this is. I have many mixed thoughts on this whole thing. It is very good overall. It ties a lot of things together. It brings things to a conclusion, but it suffers in the same way that uh, Lord of the Rings of Two Towers did because you know that there's that last final bit. And they've even come out and the producers have come out and said, yes, the season five is like the return of the king. It's like, yep. Can fucking feel it. And it's because whilst we get payoff, we don't get the full thing. And so every emotional investment that we've had for this season and for the four seasons, you're feeling like, okay, 
that was satisfying to a point, but I wanted more. And we're probably going to get it, but we have to wait two years, which is not fun. Um, so it's hard to kind of say, oh, it's fantastic, it's amazing, just because unlike something like Avengers Endgame, which was a movie that was just pure payoff, hence why people love it so much, because it's the combination of 10 years of hard work and labor and investment, and it's all payoff. They didn't try and set anything up for the next phase of the MCU in that movie. It's like, no, we're closing everything off. This is a hard line, and we are, we are making a big statement of that by having Iron Man die and that death meaning something we are gonna have it so that there is there is certainty and conclusion you don't have that in in this show what i will say is kind of um uh, coming off of our representation conversation for plan b and they have done a phenomenal fucking job with the character of Will Byers going from essentially the MacGuffin of the show in season one to having one of the best emotional journeys and best fucking understated performances of one of the most celebrated current TV shows of the last eight years wow because in season one he's trapped in the upside down he doesn't really get any time to develop the character beyond him seeming to, he him coming across as like the the more frail of the of the core group of boys and then in season two you see him dealing with the repercuss repercussions and manifestations of being in the upside down and dealing with post-traumatic stress essentially and he delivers that really well but he's being puppeted to a certain degree so you know how much is will how much is the bad guy but he played as an actor noah ship uh no no noah schnapper i think his surname is um he plays Schnapp. it really well in the third one he gets to be emotional teenager an angsty hormonal teenager and we get don't care about spoilers for season three but we get very clear indication that he could very well be gay and they play it so well and there's a particular scene where he just wants to play dungeons and dragons with his friends and they fob him off and he goes and he goes to Byers Castle in the woods and he just beats it to shit with an axe and just destroys it. He's crying as rain. It is emotional. It is beautiful. You, you feel your heart breaking for this boy who is desperately trying to cling on to something good in a life that has been so traumatic. And then in season four, we very quickly in the first episode or so, we learn that he's actually at least internally coming to the conclusion that he is gay and he has feelings for Mike Wheeler. And 
he has invested time doing this painting for Mike and everyone in his family thinks that it's a painting for a girl that he likes and um, unaware that it's for Mike. And throughout the first part of the season, he's trying to have these conversations with Mike and these really heartfelt emotional conversations that are quintessential masked conversations. You know, those conversations everyone has where they have a crush on someone when they were young and they didn't want to be the one to just come out and say, I think I fancy you. I find you attractive or anything. I'm just being honest. They said like, so what would you do if, you know, a friend of yours was kind of attracted to you? What kind of person do you, are you interested in? How are you emotional? You ask all the important questions for this imaginary other person, because you want to feel out, Am I safe putting my heart on the line? And he does it so well with Mike and utilizing his kind of sisterly relationship that he's built with Eleven since the end of season three. And then he has this absolutely stunning little conversation. I think it's in the penultimate episode of all of season four. He's in the back of this pizza delivery thing and he's just talking to L, uh, talking to Mike. And Mike is talking about how he's worried about losing L and how he really cares for her. And Will just starts talking to him. And it's very clear that he has rehearsed this speech. The only thing that he changes is who it is in reference to. And he just swaps himself for Mike and Mike for L. And he just delivers it and it is beautiful. And then Mike just feels so comforted and supported and this new fresh bond with his best friend that he had, he's felt distanced from for so long. And then Will just looks out of the window away and is just tears in his eyes and his hands shaking and he's just biting down because he doesn't want to show his feelings. And it's heart wrenching. Beautiful. It adds on to it. And then they put the fucking cherry on the cake because at the end of that scene, Jonathan, Will's brother, sees him in the rearview mirror and just clues in. Will isn't giving him advice about Eleven. He's opening his heart. And rather than having uh, a very typical conversation of brother and brother and brother talking and saying, oh, we never talk anymore. It is pure, honest conversation between two growing young men. And it is fucking beautiful how they talk. Um, Jonathan talks about him being his brother and no matter what, and really stressing that I think I know what's going on with you, but you are clearly not comfortable with talking about it openly. I am just telling you, I don't care. And it's open, honest, and fuck me, Noah, he's so good. He quavers his voice so well. He just says the word, yeah. And it's just layered with fucking emotion and love and, oh, absolutely stunning performance. And it just gives this, it is... 
you can feel like it's very accurate of how a young boy must have felt discovering that they were gay during the 80s and how hard it must be to be with these people who are so closely bonded, these best friends, that you cannot tell this growing internal truth of yourself to the the fact that you don't want them to shun you and ostracize you and it was absolutely brilliant storytelling genuinely fantastic and i just wanted to to really talk about that rather than the show because i don't want to spoil it for people who haven't seen it yet brilliant um, masterclass master makes me almost wish i'd stuck it out Mm. It is just just a beautiful, beautiful character arc from season one to now. The um, Noah has just gone from strength to strength as an actor in that role, and it is heavenly, genuine delight. Sounds like it was well worth breaking the internet for. Yes, it was, 100%. <laughs> but that's all I wanted to talk about for, for Stranger Things 4 Part 2 which is a tongue twister and a pain in the ass to say. Um, well, I mean, now you've only got to wait two years and then the spin-off. Yeah, probably. No, they are. Oh, really? Yeah, I read today that they were doing a spin-off, but I didn't actually, I just read the headline, actually, to be honest. I didn't read who it was going to be about, but apparently they are going to do a okay. Stranger Things spin-off. All right, fair enough. And I've seen some stuff from Metallica saying about how much they enjoyed how their music was used. Yes. So this. the character Eddie, um, he, there, there are there are now two things in loosely popular zeitgeist to give credence to the quality and importance of the bard in any Dungeons and Dragons group. One of them is Scanlan Shorthold in Critical Rock. The other one is Eddie in Stranger Things. Because fucking hell, he rocks it in hell. <laughs> he does really well. Um, he's he's a great actor. He really nails it. Being the new person coming into a show with so much hype, that must have been scary as sin. But he gels with the actors. He really nails his performance. And he gets a worthy, worthy conclusion, if heartbreaking. But really good. And come on, Metallica, gotta do it. Well, yeah, but, but it makes Metallica makes any TV show better. Mm -hmm. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but I think that brings us to the end of the show this week, ladies and gentlemen. We are coming. We managed to fill it. We managed to fill the normal time. Somehow we did it. We do it every time. I, I talked a lot about nothing. <laughs> um, but thank you so much for joining us, ladies and gentlemen. This has been episode 152 of Armchair Producers, where we talked about our chain movie of the week wake in fright care of travis we are going to be watching mutiny on the bounty starring uh marlon brando and richard harris two of the two of the old school greats and legends of cinema um we talked about the trek respective of course <laughs> and and we are taking donations for to uh see if we can extract <laughs> Uh, michelle yes. from the hostage takers um michelle um, if you are watching um we will be having people live on uh the stream next week who can decipher sos so if you want to blink sos of any location that you may know where you are where we can send people to help you just let us know 
Um, Thoughts and prayers. Thoughts and prayers. We, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if that. Ah, I, oh, I kind of feel dirty saying that. <laughs> um, uh, there was the palate cleanser for Travis of Rocky Four. Talked about the delightfully sounding Plan B. I talked about Candyman and Stranger Things for Part Two. Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. You can catch us every Wednesday evening about 7.30, maybe a little bit later if I'm running late. But please don't forget to join us at twitch.tv slash thefrybrain. Armchair Producers on any good podcasting service usually goes up a week uh, on Sundays. I did miss this week. Um, sorry for the delay on that one. At The Fried Brain at Evil Trav on Twitter. We do take your recommendations as well. So if you have a movie or a TV show that you just say, yep, you've got to watch this, give us a reason. It doesn't necessarily have to be because it's amazing. It could be terrible. Let us know and we will endeavor to watch the movie or at least the first episode or two of a TV show. But for now, thank you very much. Good night. Good night.